Great, yeah, if we haven't met, my name is Andy, and it's good to be able to just breathe a little bit. One of the blessings of just being outside this morning, and it's, it's really good to be with you. I assumed today was going to be another beautiful sunny day. My family spent the morning yesterday at Westwood, and then we wake up this morning, it's like, what? I thought it was almost June, I thought we were here, I thought we were high and dry, but as you know, BC, not, no such luck. Um, it's also a really cool Sunday. I was talking to Katie. She preached a few weeks ago, and she just said how weird it was to preach to a bunch of masked up faces. So I'm glad to be the one who gets to preach up here that I can see you smile. So now you have to smile, even if you look grumpy, even if you think it's a terrible message. Oh, Paul, you miserable man. No. <laughs> it's nice to have that encouragement up here. It's great to be able to see each other's faces. Of course, if you still want to wear a mask, you are welcome to do so. Um, these past 14 months, it's been 14 months since we, we were shut down for the first time, and it has been a restless season. Who can agree with me that we have been restless in these times? There's been so much that's been stirring up. There's been so much been going on. Maybe as an individual, you know, things have been happening with your jobs, finances, isolation, disruption to every routine, um, the inability just to plan for the future, that's really affected me. Like just the inability to say, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, we want to do this. You just can't do anything. So you're sort of stuck in this infinite moment of just life being on hold in some cases. As well, we've experienced this restlessness in the church. We know that we've all had different opinions on what's the right thing to do here? How far should we push? What is the, what's the perfect way to go, go forward? Some countries are doing this, some countries are doing that. Which scriptures are most relevant? And as well, society at large has been restless during this season. I think society is always restless, isn't it? We're all out, always moving from something to the other. But society in this time, especially at the beginning of COVID, was so restless. If we think back to George Floyd, if we think back to the protests all around the world, the different things that have been going on, and you know, we, those situations were sort of turbocharged by this critical mass of attention that all turned itself to those social platforms. And as they tune into social platforms, the things that were being highlighted that would have been highlighted normally was so much greater, so much louder, because everyone was tuning in. And as leaders in the church, there's been restless in our souls as well. Now, our hope is in Christ. We know that firm foundation, but there's been this restlessness. There's, there's been this keen knowledge that something isn't right right now. Something is different. Something is not right. We need to move somewhere new. And as I've been studying in the last month, the book I've found myself in and keep coming back to is 2 Corinthians. And there's a particular verse within 2 Corinthians that just leapt off the page in, that, in those scriptures as Paul talked about his restlessness. Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. So he was one of the main figures in the early church who, who went around, who visited places. But we join him in 2 Corinthians where he's just in this point of tension in his life. And as he ministers, and as I've been reading these things, I've been reading Second uh, Corinthians, I've just felt that this is a message today that's especially relevant for us that have felt caught up in all that social unrest and restlessness in these times. As I think about our young adults, as I think about our late teens, our early 20s, our 30s, and what they're dealing with and the society that they're having to uh, figure out life with, uh, this book of the Bible I just felt has been screaming off the page, um, at me at least. So what I'm going to try and do today is just share that with us and, and hopefully it blesses. 
See, the church in Corinth, when, when Paul writes 2 Corinthians, uh, he begins his letter talking about a lot of different things. But basically what was happening is that people were re- starting to reject the apostle Paul. They were starting to look to people who were still in their local city, maybe more charismatic figures, maybe wealthier figures in the church, better business people, people who were maybe more charming. If you know anything about Paul, he wrote amazing letters. Most of our Bible is, 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 is letters from him in the New Testament, at least anyway. But in person, there was nothing that would really attract you to him. Uh, he was an unimpressive public speaker, according to his own words. And instead of the Corinthian church looking back to their founding leader as the authority that God had put over them, they had instead to become distracted more by the city around them. Paul was a poor man who supported himself through manual labor. He was under constant persecution. He was well acquainted with suffering for the gospel. He was often homeless and shipwrecked and in prison. He wasn't that man of stature that so often we want to look to in tough times. The Corinthian church was in danger of assimilating to the culture around them. And if you know, I actually preached on 1 Corinthians in February. So I was like, oh, I better not repeat the exact same message here. And Paul's going to call me out on that. But it is different. But to the same church. So a lot of the things. And if you remember back to then, as I was just introducing us, Corinth was this intellectual city that overemphasized human knowledge, human performance. They favored human discovery over revelation from God. Does that sound familiar? And I think the reason why I just felt so keenly aware of First and Second Corinthians in this season, as I just see a mirror for our own culture being represented through these books of the Bible. You know, we can often think, oh, you know, 2,000 years ago, they were totally different people, but actually Corinth were battling with the, some of the real similar stuff that we battle with today. And so Paul was restless. He was writing this letter from, from, a, from a northern, northern Macedonia, and he was writing this letter to a church that he knew was starting to drift away. And he was also missing a friend who he had sent to Corinth to deliver another letter, his disciple Titus, or his apprentice Titus. It says this in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 to 13. And if you have your Bibles with you, just turn to 2 Corinthians 2. That's where we're going to spend most of this morning. In the NLT, it says this, When I came to the city of Taurus to preach the good news of Christ, the Lord opened a door of opportunity for me. In the ESV, it says, My spirit had no rest because my dear brother Titus hadn't arrived with a report back from you. So I said goodbye and went on to Macedonia to find him. And that's an odd bit of scripture. God just opened a door of the gospel being preached into a city, but yet was this apostle's great restlessness in his soul that he was just like, I have to head back towards Corinth. I have to go look for my disciple. I have to go look for Titus and and seek him out on his way back. And I think what follows here in 2 Corinthians is a great outplay, a great encouragement as Paul is writing this letter as he's on his way back to this church to encourage them again, uh, is a great encouragement for our similar culture. And I think the main question for us here this morning is, as we live amongst a culture that's very different from God's word, that enjoys different things, that sees different things as targets and things to achieve, how do we live gospel proclaiming lives surrounded by an unrelenting culture? So let's read 
Paul goes immediately from this unrestlessness to his, this, this next section of Scripture, which will be our main text for this morning, 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 17. He says this, he says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So he's talking about restlessness, and now he's switching gears, and now he's saying, in Christ, he always leads us in triumphal procession. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and amongst those who are perishing. That's those people who don't know Jesus yet. To the fragrance from death to death, and to the fragrance and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. The thing that has been sticking out to me recently as I read that passage is just this thing of fragrance aroma, and how that's linked with life and death. Jesus, through us, through that procession that Jesus is leading us on through culture, through that procession that Paul was being led on by Christ through the nations around him at the time, he was spreading a fragrance. Jesus spread a fragrance when he was around the cities. You could see people as he interacted throughout the Gospels, people that really liked the fragrance of God. Jesus and people that really detested the fragrance of Jesus and everything that he was bringing around him says that we, Paul encourages us here, that we are the aroma of Christ to each other. And that's one of the great tragic things that has been stolen from us in in COVID, right? The thing that's been stolen for us in these times, maybe you're watching at home here today and you still haven't been able to, to find a spot or to get out here or you just don't think it's the right moment. And what's been stolen from us at this time is being the aroma, being from life to life for each other. Do you have a friend that you know that's an excellent cook? Nobody? No one's sticking their hands up. So maybe it's been such a long time since you were able to actually go to someone's house and eat a meal that you've forgotten. But I think we all have that person in mind that when they invite you around to their house and they invite you in and you open the door and you smell what is being presented, you smell what is being cooked, you instantly what? Become hungry for the very thing that they're trying to present to you. And what I love about what Paul is saying here is that he is saying that we are the aroma of Christ to one another. Amongst the saints, we are the aroma of Christ from life to life. And that's why we're encouraging you, for those who are still listening online, to come back into services. You can watch a TV cooking show on the TV, and it can, make you, it can give you some level of hunger in your stomach for what's next. But how much better is it to actually be there, to be smelling it, to be tangibly aware? And God can do anything. He's not limited by any video feed or connection. He, he works. But in the example, we want to be close to the fragrance of believers, don't we, church? And since you're all here, I know you all agree with that. So perfect. <laughs> when we're around the fragrance of other believers who are hungry for God, we become more excited for Jesus. I think about Joy Becker. Some of you guys may know her. You may not know her. But when you're around Joy Becker, she's been in our church for years, and she has just this testimony upon testimony upon testimony of healing and God doing things in her life. And her name is Joy, and her whole personality is joy of Christ within her. 
And I can tell whenever I'm around Joy and I see who she is, in spite of all the other things, I think, wow, I want to be close to Christ. How many of you know someone like that who, when you're around them, draws you in closer just by their fragrance? Troublingly, though, in verse 16, and something that I think is the highlight here for us as our young adults and our young people, is this other bit where it says that we're a fragrance also from death to death. That actually, some people don't like what is being cooked up. Some people smell that thing and they think, oh, I can feel my stomach turning just at the thought of eating that thing. Do you have that food that you really don't like? That if your friend even was to invite you around, that you'd be like, oh, I'm a little disappointed. Um, switching from food, um, I, uh, my dad growing up, he was a dairy farmer when he was a, a, a younger man. And so he had connection with these dairy farms. And we used to get to go and go to the farms and play on the haystacks and run off to cows and all these things. And who knows what a dairy farm smells like? It smells like um, the things that cows do all day. They eat and they poop. But the smell of a dairy farm to me, when I find one, when I go drive past one, I lower the windows of the car. I take a big breath in and I'm like, fill my lungs with that awesome smell of cow manure. Nice, organic, grass-fed cows doing their thing. How many of you resonate with that? How many of you like the smell? Okay, there's more hands than I thought. It's probably, it's probably about 5% of people here. But there are those amongst us who love that smell. Keeping on the subject of, I don't know why I was in this subject, but I have a dog as well. Um, oh, funnily enough, my Camilla, she didn't have the same experience growing up, so she hates it when I roll down those windows near the dairy farms. Luckily, there's not that many around here. Also, I had this funny experience, but smells have a perception to them. To some, it's life. To others, it's death and poop. We have this uh, dog. She's lovely. And, but if you have a dog... Uh, you guys just got a dog over there, and I'm sure you're finding out dogs do dog things around the house sometimes and in the garden. And there's these awesome things that you can get. You can get these bags that actually smell of lavender. And as you pull them out of the bag, you get this wonderful whiff of this lavender scent to hopefully cover up from the thing that you're about to get close to. And we got these bags, and we thought they were the best thing ever. Oh, isn't that great? We now get to smell lavender. But no, what it actually was is it kind of Every time I used those bags and then would smell lavender elsewhere, I would just get reminded of my dog's business. And it's interesting how the smell perception in life can change. It's interesting how can it, it can be from life to someone and from death to someone else. The New Living Translation uh, writes the same passage of Scripture in this way. It says from verse 15, Our lives are, li our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. Again, who, those people who don't know Jesus yet. Those, to those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. One of the things I love about the NLT there, it says, to those who are being saved. Maybe it's those who are on the journey of being saved. They're starting to recognize that scent. They're starting to have that experience where it's turning and it's becoming a beautiful aroma. But the trouble for our young people, and I guess the trouble for everybody, is that nobody wants to smell like death. How many things do you do in your day just to smell nice? How many of you had a shower this morning? Ooh, a lot less hands than the dairy farm thing. 
that's an interesting thing. Go home, have a shower. I know we're outside. I made a joke earlier that now we can take off our mask. I'll have to start brushing my teeth again. No, I always brush my teeth. But how many things do we do in our daily lives to make our fragrance nice, to try and get rid of any ugly smell? You remember those experiences if you're a guy, you grew up and you realized about girls and you realized about attraction and you, you would just cover yourself in Axe body spray. And the, the boys' changing room at school was this cloud, and vaping wasn't invented yet, but there was this cloud of vape through the, through the washroom as, as, as boys just tried to cover them in a beautiful scent. If you smell bad, you're embarrassed if you know about it, but if you smell bad, you're embarrassed. And that's key for us as we live in this culture. It's actually a little, can be a little embarrassing to smell like death to the culture around us. You know, I have a beard and hipster glasses, so you, I get my coffee from a very woke and awesome coffee shop. Um, it's regard, it's awesome. They have two locations, new location in the North End by the mall. Go support them. They're awesome, awesome people. But we have conversations, we have interactions about, like, yesterday I was in there and I said, oh, well, I'm actually preparing a sermon today. I'm actually looking through my scriptures and preparing. And you can just tell there's this slight awkwardness of, Oh, Andy, I, I liked you a bit more a few moments ago. And these are awesome guys, and I'm sure they're not thinking this. I'm sure this is just my perception. But, oh, Andy, I, 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 like, I like talking to you about the other thing, not about this other thing. That, that what I assuming about what you're preaching on and what I assume your church believe actually doesn't smell too nice to me. I was getting my hair cut a few weeks ago, and myself, uh, the barber, and his wife were around, and we were just chatting about church and how they want to come to church. But they were making these statements, yeah, just about how, yeah, it's not nice when the church tells people what to do. It's not nice when, when, when the church believes certain things about certain things, you know? And I could just feel myself in the, with the guy with the razor on my back just being like, ah, oh, yeah, I want you to come to church, but I want you to enjoy the fragrance. I want something to turn in your spirit from, from smelling death to smelling life. And you know what? It's, this is all around our culture. Our culture of short attention spans. Jay Kim uh, wrote this. He said, our culture of short attention spans favors bursts of opportunated, it would be helpful if I could read it, opportunated intensity over slow, considered simmers. Our addiction to novelty also places a high value on leaving the old and discovering the new. As one person wrote, being post anything is now a sign in our culture of arrival and maturity. Oh, I'm post that. I've arrived. I'm woke. Rethinking is valued over remembrance. Innovation is valued over continuity. Truth established over a long span of history matters little in the snobbery of the digital age. And to bring it back to Paul, the same writer, in a different letter, he said it in this way, in 1 Timothy 3, 7, which I think sums up our perfect culture perfectly in this way. He says it about the culture. He says, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Isn't that true for our culture? We're always learning. We're always learning something new, but somehow never are able to arrive at the definitive truth. And for us young people, we're seemingly caught in a catch-22, where man's truth is moving all around this way, then that way, then there's two groups, then there's three groups, then there's ten groups, then there's two main groups again. We, we find ourselves in a catch-22 as we try and love on our neighbor and love God. We need to somehow wake up to how Scripture references how we are to behave in a culture like this. 
We live in an Instagram culture. No surprise. Maybe you're not on Instagram, but we still live in that sort of snapshot Uh, idealized culture. You share the best bits of your life. And we do that with church and scripture as well. We share the best bits. We share the most happy verses. We share the things that we think are going to draw people in and not scare them away in any measure. But as I've been reading the New Testament in the last few months and really been concentrating on just going through large sections, reading a whole book all at once just to see the pattern of scripture, I've been seeing warning after warning after warning after warning of how we are to interact with the world around us. Just to quickly skim through in Galatians 1.3, it says Jesus Christ who gave up our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The present evil age. In 1 John 5, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Philippians 2.15, it says in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Scripture after scripture after scripture has something to say about the culture at large. And I think the greatest lie that the enemy has told our generation in the 2020s has been that actually this generation isn't so bad. You know, actually we're getting a lot of things right. Actually we're moving forward. Actually we're advancing. And yes, there is, we're advancing. We're receding in other areas. There's, there's all sorts of different things going on. But we've forgotten as a generation these warnings about our culture. Jesus speaking in John 15 verse 19 says, if you were of the world, so this is Jesus, this is legit. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We hate reading that verse. Well, you might not hate reading that verse, but that verse makes me feel, people are going to hate me. People aren't going to like me so much. It's going to be an awkward conversation when I get into that. At that, at that shop. In Galatians 1.10, it says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? And I see it. And the reason this is such on my heart is today is I've, you know, I've been in this church for 10 or so years and I've, I've been heavily involved in sort of the young adults, the young people. And I get to see people come into the church, people receive Jesus, people continue in faithfulness. And I also get to see some people get distracted and lost. And as I see people get distracted and lost, I feel like the main cause of that is they try and figure out their scripture to, and they try and figure out their faith to make it try and smell nice to the world. And in that smelling nice to the world, they actually begin to prefer the fragrance of the world to the fragrance of God and Scripture and Jesus. So doom and gloom, massive tension, not much hope here. Let's turn and see what the writer says just after this. Oh, sorry, let's do that next. There's three ways we can conduct ourselves in a culture that rejects Jesus. We can oppose the world and aggressively reject it good at that. Frankly, it's easy to, re- to aggressively reject something. Um, it's an easy way to hold the line. That second group is that we can embrace the world and put every type of trap and explanation to try and make it a beautiful fragrance. Or the third thing is that we can actually do what God says through Paul, starting in verse 17. And this is where we find the hope for today for us. It says in verse 17, for we are not, and he's referencing here the speakers that he was struggling with the church going off to. But we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word. But as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. 
I want to talk about that word to peddle. Peddling, in our society, it means to just sell something cheaply, small, just to do anything to get rid of this thing, to make a quick buck. In their society, the word more has close connotations to watering down wine to make more money as you sell it. And as I, as I looked at the commentators and as they were looking at pointing that out, I was like, how potent the picture for us. We are not to peddle the gospel. We are not to water down the wine. What if I took your favorite wine, if you drink wine, and I watered it down four or five times to spread it out? Would you enjoy it? No. And what else is closely represented with wine in the New Testament? The blood of Christ. How can we water down? How can we, how can we peddle God's word? The next thing for us, and I think key for us not to skip over, is that we are people or we are men of sincerity. Just to oddly mention the dictionary definition, but sincerity is the virtue of one who communicates and acts in accordance with the entirety of their feelings, with the entirety of their beliefs, with the entirety of their thoughts, and desires in a manner that is honest and genuine. Just beneath that, it says freedom from hypocrisy. To express yourself in a sincere way is to express yourself freely from hypocrisy of thought. And who knows that that is one of the big things that the world hates about the church is its hypocrisy. We need sincerity in our world more than ever. Would you agree? In quick comments, in divisive debates, we need whole thoughts that are sincere. We know that we see that in the life of Jesus. He was the most sincere person you would ever meet. He might disagree with your way of life. He might yell over you. He might turn over tables, but you were getting the whole picture. And it wasn't a hypocritical picture either. You knew he believed what he stood for. The next thing is that we are commissioned in the sight of God. That means we have power, church. That means it's not just our own effort. When I'm sitting in the barbershop, it's not just my own effort to articulate the words to try and convince these people into the kingdom of heaven or try to find the right service with the right preacher who's going to smell the nicest to them. Probably not today's preach, unfortunately. But we are commissioned by God. That means, you know, the weight doesn't rely on me. He's commissioned me and I'm in his sight, which I see as he's looking out for me. And I'm also in the fear and respect of what he said and declared, not what I just think and want to declare in my own strength. And lastly, in verse 17, he says what? He says, we speak in Christ. The message summarizes these two verses as this. It says, this is a terrific responsibility. Is anybody to take it on? No, but we, at least we don't want to take, sorry, but at least we don't take God's word, water it down, and then take it to the streets to sell it cheap. We stand in the presence when we speak. God looks us in the face. We get what we say straight from God and say it as honestly as we can. Just quickly, as we finish up here, I just want to turn two chapters later to 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6. And maybe I'll just skip through here just just for the sake of time, but 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul says that we have this ministry that we have this ministry of going to the world by the mercy of God. It says in verse 2, By the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And then he says, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. 
And the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. This thing of the world being veiled, I think is important for us to realize as we think about how the world perceives the church. When I read those verses that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers, what posture does that take you into in relation to the world? For me, I think Paul is trying to get us to a posture of compassion. If you met someone who was blinded, what would you feel to their, to their disability? You'd feel compassion. You'd try to guide them. You wouldn't yell at them for bumping into things or to finding the wrong things. You'd try and guide them. You'd try to introduce them to the light. This verse changes our posture and how we relate to the world into one of compassion. Instead of you're against me, it's you're blinded, and I want to introduce you to the light. The same writer said this in 1 Timothy 1, verse 13, about his own journey. He says, Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that in Christ Jesus. And what is important for, for us to remember is that we were all once blind. I once was blind, but now I see. I think Paul, uh, sorry, Mike referenced that last week as he spoke. We have to pray earnestly for God to remove the veil that, has, that the enemy of this world has blinded the people of the world. And next, the only thing that can help these people to meet Jesus is to be transformed. Just in chapter 3 of this same book, it says, But when one turns to the Lord, that veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. And I love that. It's the thing that gives me great hope as I know that I am still a sinful man, that I know my own perfections above any of your imperfections. I know that when I meet Jesus, that when I see him more, that when I read his scriptures more, that I'm in his presence more, the more I see him, the more I become like him. The more Jesus is shown to the world through our sincerity, it's not a word, but pretend it is. The more Jesus is shown to the world through our sincerity, the more it is likely to be transformed by him. People need to see Jesus to be transformed. Christ reconciled us to himself. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's entrusted it to us as ambassadors of Christ, and he's making his appeal through us. As we finish up today, and maybe uh, the band can just play one song. I think we've got time just to run over it, just by a couple minutes, if that's good, Paul. I just want to encourage us, especially if this is something that you, maybe you have those own interactions. Maybe it's a family member that you, that you struggle to represent or you worry about how they perceive what's going on in the church. As we worry about that, let's not reject the authoritative word given to us by God like the Corinthians had started to do. Let us stop compromising this trustworthy word of God, to fit what smells good to the world. Let us fall in love with scripture again. I can tell you in these last few months, Paul gave a, uh, an example a couple of weeks ago of a young man whose life was being transformed again as he engrossed himself in scripture. I can say that the same thing is happening to me, 
that I felt in this time, as I poured into scripture more, I can see the transformation more in my life and I can see the light of the world with what it is to the world. Who smelt most like Christ? Christ did, right? If we are the aroma of Christ, we want to smell like him and we can look to how he interacted with the world. This posture, his posture, what he said, who he loved on, who he spoke against. Jesus was the ultimate example of sincere truth to reach the world. And Christians, the number of people who have had their faces unveiled around us, it may not seem like it in Anaimo, but we number in the billions, church. There are billions of people around the world who have had their eyes unveiled to the glory of God. So are we hopeful from Nanaimo? Yeah. We're hopeful for our family members. We're hopeful for our co-workers. We're hopeful for the coffee shop. We're hopeful for the barber shop. That the fragrance of God, that the aroma of Christ may start to arise from this place. And that's one of the awesome things about worshiping God together. And we're going to go back into worship God. And if you're struggling with this, just hold out your, your arms to God and just ask him to touch you. Ask him to give you something of his presence. Ask God to turn your attention back to his ways. We are not hopeless. We've been given this ministry. God is on the move. The veil has been removed for us and he will do it for others. Thank you, church.